think for us, value is always top of mind in everything we do and trying not to price ourselves out of the market. We know that we're not necessarily a destination resort. We want to give people the opportunity to experience skiing and, you know, some of that has to be with affordability and giving them the access to do it. We feel very passionate that once you've learned to ski or snowboard, you're going to do it for the rest of your life or until you no longer can. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, fired up today to throw a spotlight on one of the most unique and most important ski areas in the entire country. Before we get there, if you are a paid subscriber to the Storm Skiing Journal and Podcast, I want you to know that you have access to this podcast seven full days before free subscribers. And I want to thank you very sincerely for that support. Because of you, The Storm is a sustainable small business with a clear future and growth path. If you are not a paid subscriber yet, I get it. We all have finite resources and we all have decisions to make and none of us can buy everything. I do want you to know, however, that if you do decide to upgrade to a paid Storm subscription, not only will you get podcasts a full week in advance of when you're getting them now, you will also get everything below the paywall in the Storm Skiing Journal, which frankly is about 80% of what I write. And you know you will get frequent quality content. I guarantee 100 articles every single year, and your investment directly supports independent ski journalism that's not just about stoke and bro culture. If you're not quite ready to step up to the paid tier yet, you can still subscribe to the free tier at stormskiing.com. Before we get to Buck Hill, a quick word from my sponsor. Profile Search International is back for 2024. They are the ski industry talent acquisition experts. Do you ever listen to this podcast and think, dang it, that person Stu is interviewing is brilliant, thoughtful, insightful, and funny. I wish I had someone like that running my ski area. Well, I'll tell you what. The team at Profile Search International has been placing great leaders exactly like the ones that I interview all over the world, from the Sierra Nevadas to the Alps to Alaska to the Andes for decades. They get it, and you can too. Think of Profile Search International as sort of your expert bootfitter for the talent. For 30 years, they have been obsessed with finding the perfect fit for your strategic hiring requirements. Like a great boot fitter, they don't just strap you into any old boots or skis. They find the perfect pairs, the ones that let you carve clean lines, lead your organization through challenges, and leave the competition at gate one. Profile Search finds these matches by meticulously researching. They assess fit, competencies, and aptitudes among the world's great industry leaders, and then match them to the exact needs of your mountain. If you want to build strong, accountable, strategic teams with the support and expert guidance for Profile Search, just reach out to them at ProfileSearch.com or hit me up and I will send you the details you need. Go get the best talent for your special brand and places today at ProfileSearch.com. Episode 160, Nate Burr, Chief Operating Officer of Buck Hill, Minnesota. Did you do a double take in that intro when I said that we were here to discuss one of the most important ski areas in America? Did you think maybe you accidentally teed up an episode on Jackson Hole or Breckenridge or Aspen when you had meant to plug in Buck Hill? 
you didn't think that if you're part of Buckhill Nation already, because if you are, then you already know that this barely 300 vertical foot bump has contributed more to skiing than most 3,000 vertical foot destination ski resorts. Buckhill is a big, big deal. With 3.7 million people at its doorstep and dirt cheap lift tickets, Buck is one of the most important learning centers anywhere. But it is also one of the most important training centers anywhere. To ski at Buck is to witness top flight athletes hone their skills, running gates, zipper lining bumps, and fast lapping the terrain park on high speed rope toes side by side by side. Though the hill covers just more than 40 acres, every inch of Buck has been optimized to create one of the greatest ski training centers in the entire world. It is a special place with a special story, and we are going to hear the whole thing today. Let's go. My guest today is the Chief Operating Officer of Buck Hill, Minnesota. With a 309-foot vertical drop on 45 acres served by nine ski lifts, Buck Hill is a small ski area with an enormous competitive legacy, having sent more than 50 athletes to the U.S. ski team, including Olympic gold medalist Lindsey Vaughn. Nate Burr is my guest. Nate, welcome to the storm. I am so hyped for this one. Buck Hill is such a special place, and I cannot wait to dig into it with you. How are you doing today, Nate? How's life out in Minnesota? Uh, thank you for having me, Stuart. Uh, life out in Minnesota is great. You know, we're dealing with weather similar to everybody else. It's rainy and gloomy here today, like mid low 40s. Uh, last week, we were sub-zero temperatures down like minus 10. So, you know, we rolled the punches, but the hill is looking good. Our guys have done an incredible job this year, just getting the hill in as best shape as possible based on, you know, the weather that we have had. So always appreciative of those, but uh, but doing great. People are out here, they're having fun. And that's 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 what we're all about. Well, when folks pull up into the parking lot, not only will they see a well-covered hill because of all your snowmaking that we'll talk about, but they'll also see a brand new chairlift. And this was Buck Hill's first new lift since 2006. It's a Doppelmeyer quad chair, fixed grip quad. Tell us about this new lift, Nate, why it was time to replace the old center quad, or I guess lift four it was called, but break this project down for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the core reason for, for replacing the chair was ultimately that the old the old chair, uh, which was a quad, uh, kind of a small, small quad. I think it was back in the 70s that was put in, but ultimately it didn't fit quite four people. So it was a, it was a tight squeeze for, for modern day modern day people. But but ultimately, I think that the, the biggest reason for it was just that it was the serviceability and finding parts. So it was really difficult. So if we had any issues with it in season or something broke, very hard for us to you know efficiently get it back up and running quickly. Not impossible, but ultimately that's the biggest concern is that it, it is our main chair and ultimately the thought of it potentially going down and not being able to find parts or having to be an extensive amount of time before we could get parts was really the catalyst for making the change. But as that project grew, you know, it's uh, it is a fixed grip quad. So the new chair does upload and download. Our last lift did not download. So that capability changes a lot with the landscape of the hill. And we added a, a brand new building to the top. There used to be kind of a shack at the top, but now it's a pretty cool building at the top that like cantilevers out over the top of the hill. It'll have an observatory deck on it and it kind of just lights up the hill with a brand new race gate at the top too. It, it really has changed the landscape at the top and the look of it. You know, it's kind of got like a little beacon at the top of the hill now that, that our guests love, our race community loves. And uh, super cool just to, to kind of see that evolve and have, have it be something, you know, a really kind of a landmark now at the top. Super cool. 
Yeah, I want to get to that new building in a minute. That's a really cool feature. I want to go back to what you said about the parts. That old quad was a Hall chairlift, and Hall, of course, has been out of business for many years. You went with a Doppelmeyer quad here, and that matches the other chairs that you have on the hill, which are both Doppelmeyer C-Tech machines. Most of these shorter fixed grip lifts that we see going in around the Midwest are actually Skytrax. Talk about the decision to go with Doppelmeyer and why that ultimately made sense for you. Again, it just gets back to serviceability and efficiency for us to be able to do it. Um, I think the fact that they're all they're all DOP chairs uh, makes that, you know, we already had the relationship with DOP. The, the ease of serviceability, our, our staff and our outdoor ops crew knowing, you know, how to, how to handle it. I mean, the new chair definitely has new pieces of technology that are on it, but, it, you know, it's really nice. It has like a, a service component to it, you know, ties into the internet. So if we if we need to call DOP, uh, you know, they can service remotely from wherever they're at. So there's that component to it. And I think the fact that we had the relationship ultimately was a big driver for why we went with that brand and that manufacturer. You know, I've not ridden the new lift yet, but I've seen pictures of it. Really slick looking, really nice, modern new lift. Uh, how's the customer reaction been to it? Have they noticed? Do they like it? Or is it just you replace the quad for a quad? Let's keep moving. Um, you know, there's been a lot, a lot of comments, people saying that they love it. They like it. You know, there's been a little questions about the, the, the lower platform, uh, when you're getting on the lift, it's a little bit different than the other platforms on the resort. I mean, for me, I'm a tall, I'm a tall guy. I'm six, four. So from where the platform got built up, it feels a little low. So we've had a couple comments on that. And, you know, I think those are things that we can address over the summer, just whether or not we will or we won't. But I, th- I think overall people have really, really liked it. I think it's a lot smoother. Um, it's way more comfy. It has, has a safety bar on it, which the other chairs don't. So, you know, guests and parents really love that. But yeah, no, I think overall people are, people are really happy with it. It's definitely a comfier ride. Uh, the chairs are a little more padded than the last one. So all in all, it's a step in the right direction. But I think for a lot of people, it's quad. It's quad chair runs and looks fairly similar with just a little more bells and whistles. So let's go back to that building at the top here, Nate. This, from what I understand, has been a vision for the current owners for a long time to have some sort of multi-purpose building at the top. And it it looks cool. And I'm not really sure if it's finished yet or if you just had the shell done, but tell us about this new building and what you hope to use it for. Yeah. So Dave and Chip's owner are the, are the owners of the resort. Dave, his background prior to the ownership of Buck was he was an entertainment architect. So he designed almost all of the rainforest cafes globally, as well as doing a handful of things at Epcot and Disneyland uh, or Disney World. You know, so he, he's a visionary. You know, he's, he was a partner at the firm, but he's also a ski jumper. He's in the Ski Jumping Hall of Fame. So he has a passion for the industry and a passion for design and architecture. And so, you know, those here, they collide. That's part of, you know, his vision for the resort when he bought it is that, you know, that ability to change this into a year-round destination with various activations. You know, those have been big projects for us. But as it relates to the chair and the building at the top for us, we always talk about this place because of our proximity and, and most resorts I think are, are the same. But, you know, we, we always talk about this place being a giant sandbox. You know, we get so many requests to do the most random type of events, you know, it could be a, a drone race. We've had police dog training out here. We've had the Tough Mudders. We've had Norwegian Fest. You know, you name the type of event, I feel like had those requests. And one of the things and a lot of those requests that always come into play is can we use the top of the hill? You know, we've done yoga at the top of the hill, weddings. But in the past, historically, the old chair and the service road that goes up, we've had the inability to really service the top, be it from a bar, getting guests up, getting them down. The new chair in the building really create an activation point for us at the top of the hill that can be used year round. Now there's a sound system, there's a lighting system going in. So we have the ability to put a bar up there, 
have our restaurant service it, do different types of events, both in season and out of season. And to be able to download people, you know, with weddings in particular, we get requests all the time, like, what can we do a wedding at the top of the hill? And it used to be, you can, but we can get you pretty close to the top, but you're kind of on your own to come down. And that's always kind of a deal breaker for people that have, you know, grandparents and stuff that want to come out. It's just, it's not realistic unless they want to try to figure out four wheelers. And at that point, it's, it's just too much for a bride and groom to think through that. But now with that servicing of the chair and being able to go up and down, it really changes that landscape. And we're already getting people asking us about it. You talked about the, is the building open yet? Not quite. Towards the end of construction, right before we got going, you know, the most important thing was to get the chair running. And we had a couple curveballs with some of the service, some of the the internet components and just getting the, the lift where it needs to be before we open, but then ultimately hit a little bit of a permitting snag with the building, which ultimately was fine. When Dave had originally envisioned it, there wasn't going to be a bathroom up there in time there was, but with the permitting snag that we hit, that's evolved. So now there's there's going to be a bathroom, there's going to be plumbing at the top, but that just it kind of pushed back the construction just to finalize that space up a little bit. So it's still getting tidied up with the intent of over the summer, that bathroom will go in and probably next fall will really be the go live where we'll do, you know, fall chairlift rides and stuff like that. But again, it just gives us a really great spot at the top of the hill to create an activation to do receptions or if people want to just have a happy hour or something like that at the top. We we have the ability to, to accommodate those requests now. So I want to make this point for the listeners, Nate, because I said in the intro, this is a 309 vertical foot hill. And <laughs> most folks listening, if they're not from the Midwest, are probably like, oh, well, you know, that's nothing. However, given where it is, it, it's the most prominent spot for quite a way. So talk about Buck Hill in relation to the surrounding landscape and what that building gives you as far as vistas and the vantage point that folks will get if they decide to host their event up there. Yeah, totally. So it, it is the tallest point in 200 miles. You know, last year we, we did add a little bit uh, with some of the grading. So with the chair in the new building, the lower terminal actually got lowered about 12 to 15 feet, which puts it on grade with our south chair or lakeside chair. And there's some improved rideability to that. Like it used to be when you're coming down the south side of the resort to get to the main chair, you had to go uphill. So if you had kids, you really had to have a fair amount of speed to be able to hit that center chair to get back up to service the rest of the resort to get to the north side where now they're both on the same grade. So getting to and from and different areas are a little bit little bit easier. Uh, and then that grade went to the top. We had a little bit of vertical, I think a total of like 12 or 13 feet at the top. But ultimately, you know, the view from the top is it really is incredible with being the, the tallest spot in the 200 miles. You can see downtown St. Paul. You can see downtown Minneapolis on a clear day. Uh, you know, at night, the, the skyline lights up. So really unique in that sense of being able to see those, you know, really kind of puts perspective, like how close we are to the metropolitan area and being only, you know, 10, 15 minutes away from center of the city. Very unique for any ski hill or resort for that matter to be that and have the viewpoint that we have. So pretty cool. So the Solners, when they first purchased the resort, this was a long simmering plan and they had actually thought about maybe doing a chandala, which is a mix of a chairlift and a gondola. So you'd have gondola cabins. Ultimately, it sounds like you went the downloading route. Talk about that decision, Nate, how you arrived at that and how the downloading actually works. So it is it is 100% upload and downloadable. Uh, there's 64 chairs, uh, about 128 capacity, but it was uh, it was tested for both sides to be 100%, which is awesome. The reason on the on the chandel, the big the biggest reason was um, you know a chandel is is three times the cost of it. So there's a big 
cost component there of just the simplicity of just budgeting concerns and be able to afford it. But I think the other, the other piece of it that maybe when Dave bought the resort and didn't really take into consideration or, or Don for that matter, when they, when originally like, oh, this is the grand scale of what we could do. I think there's, there's a lot of strategy that goes behind hill capacity, load management. And we actually want people to be on the chair. We don't want them to get them to the top and the bottom as fast as we can, which is typically different than maybe other resorts, but ultimately because of the hill being relatively small from a terrain perspective, you know, there's value in keeping you know, 120, if we're on a full day, keeping 128 people on the chair and moving at a clip, you know, that gets them off the hill. More people have a little bit more space versus we can reduce and it can be a minute ride from top to bottom, but then you put more lines at the top or lines at the bottom. And the, the experience I don't think is quite as appealing where using the fixed grip that we went with over some other structure, I think ultimately, I think just, just services the guests and the experience when they're actually on hill a little bit better. So it's a brand new lift. It's a beautiful lift. And it sounds like it was a decision you're comfortable with. So that gives you out of, as I mentioned in the intro, you have nine ski lifts. Three of those are chair lifts. Mm-hmm. Center, that's the one we're talking about. That's new this year. South was new in 2006. You upgraded your triple chair in 2002. And I'm a Midwest guy. I've been all over. Most of the Midwest is pretty behind New England and the West as far as chairlift infrastructure goes. It's pretty rare for a ski area to have an entire chairlift fleet that's all been built in this century. And, you know, Granite Peak's done a nice job with that. Trollhagen, which is near to you, has done some nice lift upgrades. So it is happening. It's it's happening slowly, more slowly in the Midwest and other regions. What does it mean for Buck Hill to now be able to look up at the hill and say, okay, all of our chairlifts are modern. They're all new. They're all been built in you know, this century. What does that mean from a from a marketing point of view, from a competitive point of view, from a pride point of view, to be able to say and point to this modern infrastructure that you have? I mean, there's, there's a lot of pride. I don't know if we market it as well as we should. You know, the fact of all the chairs being kind of newer in the grand scheme of things. But I know Dave's architecture background, he in particular takes a, a ton of pride in that. But I think ultimately where, where he looks, you know, over the past two and a half years, we've put a ton of investment dollars into a lot of infrastructure. And now this year with the chair, and I think for him, you know, those are things in his mind uh, that needed to get taken care of. And when I say infrastructure, you know, we upgraded our, our pump house, we added a handful of new snow guns. I think we did 10 over the last two and a half years. There's been a ton of construction. And some of those, you know, they're, they're on a ground so the guests don't necessarily see them i think this year actually we've showcased a lot of what our snowmaking even though we haven't had great weather we've showcased what our snowmaking capacity and ability can be in a short short window which has really led to us being able to get open a lot quicker get more of our terrain open you know ultimately those pieces of the pie i think for for him and his vision for the resort those are things that had had to get done we even had a you know the, the buildings here at the base of the resort uh, a couple of years ago before a gas pipeline was moved we couldn't build on the footprint we couldn't build out they're kind of grandfathered in based on the footprint that there are but i think when those infrastructure projects happened uh, the gas pipeline moved back and now they're beyond a 75 foot setback with the city and so now we we can make those improvements and i think for dave that's really where these other projects that have happened those are the things to make make the business 
run, uh, you know, from, a, like I talked about, you know, an efficiency standpoint, we have newer equipment that hopefully doesn't have to be touched quite as often. Uh, and our guys are more accustomed to if there is problems to be able to fix it. But ultimately with those infrastructure items getting taken care of, the new chair uh, and having all those be upgraded, we can really focus on the main parts of the resort and how do we want to reinvest in the base lodges, the chalet or adding new activations. You know, there's been parts of the resort where we talk about, you know, are there other things that we can add on? Are there improvements that we can make? Are there things for the guest experience that we can really like hone in on to create a better experience for the guest, be it skiing or on the tubing side? And I think ultimately that's where it's really cool to see where the resort is at and kind of Dave's vision for the resort, which has this grand scale of where he sees it going. Like when I, when I had my interview, you know, he was kind of running me through his digital mock-ups of what he thinks, you know, the buildings at the top of the hill or different, different pieces that could be added in. And, you know, he got to the end of it. He's like, all right, that was my dream. Now, here's my dream within a dream. And he's got this whole nother mock-up for how the resort could evolve and have indoor-outdoor skiing. And, you know, he goes down these rabbit holes because of his design and architecture side. You know, he starts doodling them. And it's it's fascinating to watch. And depending on what it is, I might, I might have to tell him, like, all right, Dave, you keep designing. And then when you're closer, let's reconvene. And it, it's, but it's, it is super cool to see his passion for that. And like, he doesn't, doesn't want to just settle for, for the standard. He wants to push the envelope. He wants to make things cool. He wants to evolve the resort and his foot is definitely on the gas as it relates to those things. And I think we're at a point now because of those different pieces that we've done over the last two, three years uh, have really put us in a spot now to say like, all right, let's talk about the buildings. Let's talk about the guest experience and how does what makes the most sense for us and how do we really keep the foot on the gas and trying to evolve the resort into its next phase of life. So it's changing really quick, no question about it. And you actually started there about four years ago in, in May 2020. We'll talk about that weird moment in history yeah. in, a, in a second here. But you know, as you watch it change, I'm, I'm wondering the point of view you're coming in to this from, Nate, did you grow up in the area? Were you a, a Buck Hill kid or, or is this all new to you? Uh, it's, it's all new to me, man. I, so I did grow up in Burnsville. So I grew up in the same city that, that Buck's in. Um, but I was, I was not a skier. Um, I grew up, I was a basketball player. I, I played basketball my, my entire life. I was a point guard. I played throughout high school and college. I played abroad. You know, that was my thing. I got my college education paid for being a basketball player. Skiing was not in the deck of cards, but after I graduated, I, you know, I majored in accounting and finance. I got a job at a CPA firm down in Boston. I worked there for four years, moved back home thinking that that was, you know, moving back with my wife, who's, who's from the area as well. And when I moved back, I worked with the CPA firm. And then after a few years, wanted to get out of the accounting world. And I got an offer to be a CFO of an energy company out on the East Coast of New Hampshire called Simple Energy. I took that took that job. My wife and I had moved out right near where Dartmouth College is uh, in Hanover. And we bought uh, an old farmhouse built in like 1801. It's like a post and beam home with a big barn on it. I just like bought it for like $220,000 just for nine acres. And it, it wow. was it was an incredible experience. And we it was right on the backside of Mount Sunapede, which is actually owned by Vail Resorts now. It wasn't at the time, but ultimately my mom works at Buck. At the time they were, I think, on the Max Pass. And so she was able to comp me a season pass at Buck. So I could get the max pass at a discount, which gave me like five or six times to, to ski out at Sunapede. I had the guys I worked with were all big time skiers. And so uh, the first time I went out, rent a pair of skis, I think the, the resort put me on, I don't know, like 130s. Uh, I got okay. 13 shoes. So it was, it was like on ice skates. Uh, but I, I grew up ice skating. So honestly, it was like a good thing for me. Got pretty comfortable pretty quick. I couldn't go fast, but but was 
comfortable just hanging with buddies and being able to kind of keep up. And then the next time I went out, I got fortunate enough. It was a demo day. So I got to experience a couple of different types of skis. And then at the end of that season, I, I purchased my first pair of Nordicas and uh, bought a season pass to the resort the year after that. So that's how I got, I got involved with it. When I moved home, I took a job at a consulting firm doing mergers and acquisition work. And then after about a year, COVID hit and my mom still worked at the resort, you know, called her being my mom and just told her like, Lost my job, still doing consulting work out for the energy company. So I kind of picked up some more hours. And then she had called me two days. I had just kind of given her a ring. And she, um, Buck has always been at the restaurant here on site, which is now Buck 54, had always been owned by Buck Hill, but operated by a third party. And Dave and Chip always had the vision of wanting to be run in-house. And really the reason for that is to grow the summer activities and you know have the ability to cater events and stuff like that. But it just with the other stuff going on at the resort, it just hadn't really been in the deck of cards to do that. But COVID kind of gave them that, that opportunity for, for whatever reason during that time to go out and seek someone, someone to open it. So my mom had called me with my accounting and finance background. She was like, Hey, can you, you know, help us come in and set up a budget, set up the POSs. Uh, they had a gentleman that had a VP of hospitality background that was supposed to run the bar. Uh, and I was really just a person there for helping move the needle and get things set up by the time we were supposed to open in September. So I got, I got brought in the first part of June and, and ultimately, you know, was just supposed to be here to oversee the open right around Labor Day. And, you know, ultimately the, the VP of hospitality didn't work out. We had a GM and a, and, a, and a chef that we hired, Dave's background with the entertainment side. He had someone uh, through the Rainforest Cafes that lives here in the region that's opened a ton of restaurants. So he brought him in just as a consultant, just to make sure that we kind of hit the spots that we were supposed to hit throughout the summer. And ultimately he offered me the CFO role of the resort, which did put me in a unique situation because my mom was the controller, would be her boss. Okay. And that was, that was kind of unique when I got offered, I was like, well, it's, it's kind of, is she okay with it? <laughs> um, but, and it, it's been, you know, it's been from living 2000 miles away from her. Uh, it's been great to, to work with her and she's, you know, she's towards the end of her career. She knows what she's doing. So there's not a lot of, you know, she just kind of, she, she just goes, uh, which is great. And it honestly has probably allowed me, you know, as we came into the COVID year, you know, I really got wrapped up in more off starting with like online ticketing, you know, just needing to get tickets to be online and how are we going to do that? And that's really like my involvement on the off side where it started was, well, someone, we have to do this for COVID. Otherwise we're going to have all sorts of issues. We don't have enough space on the inside. Our ticket office is super small. Our ski still is super small. If we're going to have 3,000, 4,000 guests here on a Saturday and we expect them to come in during this. People are just going to stop coming. We have to we have to get tickets to be online and it's just evolving. So it really kind of fell in my lap to try to hone that in. That's That was the first year, man. That was just kind of like an evolution. The first year was middle of COVID, opening the restaurant and then um, trying to get tickets online. <laughs> so you settled into the chief financial officer role at a very challenging moment in history. Eventually, you got this chief operating officer role. How did that opportunity come up, Nate? And why did that appeal to you? And, and how was it an evolution from your CFO role? You know, it just happened to be, I ended up finding myself in a lot more ops conversations, working with outdoor ops, having conversations with them, you know, working with all the different department heads. You know, honestly, it was a little bit of just, I didn't always want to be associated with accounting and finance as a, as a career. So some of it was strategic, just in the longevity of my life and my career and trying to get maybe away from, even though I'm still very much involved, I still oversee all the financials at the Hill, but trying to get out of that mix. And as my role uh, evolved and just started to fall more into ops, it was just more of one of those things, like more or less a name change, but again, ultimately for my career, just trying to 
be more of an operator than just a, an accountant or a finance guy or a bean counter or whatever. I just, I was doing a lot on the ops and having conversations about how to move the needle from an operation standpoint. So just having those open conversations with Dave about how I wanted my career to evolve and where I saw me going with the resort and saw that I would be more getting more involved in the operation side. So that's really where it stemmed from. And ultimately, I think it fits better with what I'm doing. Deb is a controller and she oversees a good chunk of the financials and prepping all the financial work. So I still oversee at the end and more on the financial modeling and making sure that we can model out or working with Mac up our marketing director and how do we promote, how do we market, how do we do different email campaigns? Like that stuff falls in on my shoulders to try to get to the data to be able to provide to him so he can do his job of, of marketing the business. So, so it sounds like you have a pretty good sync up with the owners here, the Solners who you mentioned several times. I, I do want to go back to Buck Hill's founding here. And this, yeah. this is a place that for decades was run by a couple named Chuck and Nancy Stone. What can you tell us about the Stones, Nate, and their legacy of Buck Hill? Yeah, it runs deep. It runs deep. It's, uh, you know, there's every rock here has, has a story. You know, I've met Nancy one time, you know, she was, she had kind of moved on by the time I started, but you know, everybody here has a, has a different story. And it, you know, from what I have heard and what I know is two individuals that are incredibly passionate ski racers. They're incredibly passionate entrepreneurs. And, you know, Chuck in particular, from what I understand, had a burning desire to, when they bought the resort, they did it, you know, they were ski racers. And that's why I think our ski racing legacy runs so deep here at the resort. But ultimately he had a vision for how he wanted to evolve the resort, you know, over time, but they were passionate in the community people here still talk about them all the time about what they what they did when they bought the resort and the relate so many relationships that they created while they were here you could tell that they were just very ingrained into the business and here all the time i i think i read nancy wrote a, a book about the history of buck and i think i read i think it was one of the first rope toes that they put in and on really cold days chuck would sit up in like the shed at the top and like started up overnight just to make sure that it would run the next day if they knew it was just they were going to have guests out there with snowmaking or they have the snowmaking and the snowmaking that we do now you know it was very limited on the amount of days that they would be able to open but so when they had that rope he would sit up in like a shack and like with a heater and turn it on and just sleep up in the shack overnight and turn it on and turn it off i think there were so many things you know as i've kind of learned in the industry and in the different resorts you know every every one of the maybe it's the resorts across the country but in particular in the midwest all these you know all these small ones you know they all have their quirks you know they all have their, their unique stories and they all have kind of a quirkiness to them which makes each of them unique nancy and chuck both they really like embodied being involved in the resort and do yourselfers uh and trying to make things happen there are a lot of what makes luck unique to the industry there are a lot of the legacy regarding ski racing here uh, and why it's just ingrained in our culture, because I think it was just such a passion for them. And so I think just from the very start, it was something that was inherently there with the resort. So from my understanding, Chuck and Nancy were very deliberate about selecting this site. And it was an old farm and they asked the farmer if they could lease it and they let them. So when I visited Buck Hill last winter, you know, you're cruising along the interstate and this big hill pops up and being from the Midwest, I'm like, oh, this must be, you know, like Mount Brighton in Michigan, which was built on landfill from the freeways or Wilmot in Wisconsin or Caberfe in Michigan where they built up. But that's actually not the case. It's actually a natural feature. What can you tell us about this unique geological formation that is this pretty prominent hill? And, and like you said, it's the most prominent point for 200 miles. It yeah. just kind of pops out of this flat landscape. Coming out of the Ice Age uh, is when it was formed <laughs> as the Minnesota River Valley 
kind of melted away the glaciers it is kind of the, the remnants of the glacier and that's why it has its unique pop-off it is unique it used to way back when before the freeway was put in you know and, and native americans lived here they used where the freeway is now it was like a hunting it was like a hunting and gathering trail and so they used to put their teepees so at the top of the resort on the other side there's there's a lake crystal lake and so they used to have their teepees on that side of the lake but they would hunt from the top of buck and so they would be able to notice on this hunting trail they would be able to see uh deer drinking water out of crystal lake and kind of moving on the trail and so that's really where it got got its name buck hill was really just that's what they call it so they just you know kept with it nancy and chuck saw it as like a really a really great location to have a ski hill be a be a race hill and you know had the opportunity to do it i know there was a lot over the course of time with when the freeway was put in there was a lot of contention with that and working with the city and how that evolved over time and not very happy that that went in and and now you know that freeway that sits it literally is at the base i mean you can see it from the parking lot and at the top of the hill i mean it's 160,000 cars that uh, go by the resort every day on the freeway it truly is incredible in the morning we're making snow i think i sent you that that picture earlier this season you know, we have to tell the city that we're making snow, be very uh, cautious about the wind direction so that it doesn't go on the freeway. But MnDOT construction signs are out there when we're making snow, say, hey, snowmaking's in process. Uh, and it never fails, even when we are making snow and there's none on the road. And there's a there's an accident anywhere five miles before the resort, five miles <laughs> after. The, the news channels love, love to blame us for... <laughs> Or the accidents due to snowmaking and, and when in reality you know a lot of it's just it's drivers it's distracted drivers it's there's two main intersections that go into minneapolis and the split is about a mile north of buck so it goes on 35e and 35w and there's a ton of that intersection people switching lanes but but we get the blame when it's snowmaking i think it's more of just a it's a good story um and i guess right. we look at it we try to give the news channels the, the right storyline but you know i guess any press is good press and <laughs> But it is it is a little bit of a pain in the winter time, and we get a fair amount of pushback from, uh, as a matter of fact, a, a friend I hadn't seen in a long time. She stopped at the resort last night, and I had a pair of skis I was giving to her daughter. And she's like, you know, I have a love love hate relationship with you at the resort. Every time I drive, and you guys are making snow, the road. She was even blaming us uh, for the roads, <laughs> and I was like, it's not always us. It's not always us, but it's uh, you know, it's it's definitely unique. But that proximity to the freeway in downtown is just uh, it's a very unique uh, atmosphere. So very unique place and especially family owned resorts, which despite these narratives of corporatization taking over skiing, the majority of ski areas in the United States are still owned by families or small companies. Over those decades from the 1950s or 60s when they started it up until 2015, the stones shaped what Buck Hill was. In 2015, longtime Buck Hill employee Don McClure teamed up with the Solners, who you've mentioned several times, to purchase Buck Hill from the Stones. And contemporary news reports quoted Nancy Stone as saying that she hadn't necessarily been looking to sell. Chuck, I believe, had passed on at that point. But she saw the opportunity to carry on the legacy that her and Chuck had built with this particular ownership group. From your point of view, Nate, and, and, I, and I realize you can't exactly speak for her, but, but what was that legacy they were trying to preserve? And why were these new owners the right group to carry that on? Don at the time was a long, long time GM at the resort. And so I think his involvement in it really was like from an operation standpoint, he, he kind of knew how Buck Hill was run and operated on a, on a daily basis. Uh, I think on Dave's side, as I mentioned, from my understanding, Chuck really wanted to drive the resort and continue to involve it. Always, always trying new things, making upgrades when they could and they could afford it. And I, 
I think, and you know, I, I picked Dave's brain about this as well. And just, I think ultimately, I think Nancy maybe saw some of that with Dave and his background in architecture and what he could bring to the table and trying to evolve the resort into a year round destination and just carrying on maybe that legacy that, that Chuck wanted to get to, you know, over time, you know, Don's gone on to do different business, business endeavors since. So, you know, Dave and Chip are the sole owners, but I, th- I think the other piece with Dave that's very prominent, you know, his, his background in ski jumping being that he's, he's part of the ski jumping hall of fame, you know, he has a passion for the industry. Uh, and I think she saw that very similar to her and Chuck. And I think that those things align, you know, both his sons are very good. Chuck Cole and Stone Solner are very good snowboarders, but Cole in particular, he's out at the resort. He's one of our freestyle team coaches, but he, you know, he's a diehard snowboarder. And so I think there's some alignment there, you know, with Chuck and Nancy being passionate ski racers and passionate just for the industry. I think she saw that with Dave and Chip and being, you know, Dave's passion for, for the industry. Uh, his sons have a passion for the industry and then his desire to just get involved with the resort and really try to like continue to involve it. In evolve it to its next life cycle. And I think ultimately that that's what makes Dave a, a really great fit and why I think Nancy uh, saw that when she sold her door to them. So central part of the vision of Buck Hill from its very early days has been around racing and competition. And in order to facilitate that in the early days, the Stones hired a gentleman who's very important to the identity of Buck Hill named Eric Saylor from Austria. And he actually built up that program over the course of several several decades. What can you tell us about Eric here, Nate, and how important he's been to shaping the identity of what Buck Hill is today? Dave's a Packer fan, so being in, in Minnesota, you typically like to like to be Vikings, but as an owner, he's he's a Packer guy. But here's one thing I, I know: Eric's legacy here and uh, his reputation run incredibly deep. It's the foundation of our race team. It's the foundation of a lot of things that we do and how the resort evolves. It's at the forefront of you know, as we think about evolving, how do we, how do we pay homage to it? How do we grow? How do we evolve? How do we keep his uh, unique look on it? But we always kind of reference it. He's, you know, Dave will talk about, he's our Lambeau field. He'll always be a part of who we are, our DNA, his foundation for teaching to ski race and coach ski race uh, and be a leader. That'll always be something that will be incredibly important to us and always try to find ways to pay homage to it and carry on his legacy. You know, I think for Eric in particular, when he was hired, I think one of the things that made him so unique uh, and so effective was his ability to be a little bit of a pioneer and from looking at our hill and taking advantage of a rope toe and incorporating that into training, I think really is what kind of set us apart early on. You know, it's the reason that we call the team the slalom factory, call them hot laps. You know, he always talks about gates, 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 a thousand gates, you know, the, the ability to train and get a ton of repetition. And, you know, that muscle memory that you get with it is very unique to our resort and really just kind of makes us stand apart, I think. And the fact that we have a private, private race hill. And I think that partly is, again, it gets back to the legacy and having two owners in Chuck and Nancy that ultimately were ski racers and giving that portion of Olympic dreams is the, is the trail, but it's got a ramp and a run that gets grouped every day. And it's just there for our race team. And, you know, that ultimately is very unique to us, but that ability to ride the high speed rope, get a ton of repetition in. And one of the things I, I hear often, you know, as I pick our brains of our coaches and what makes us unique, two things that really come to mind that I think maybe Eric's on the hill, but I know it's part of our coaching and what makes us unique is that on that race hill, you have a distinct vantage point that you can see the top and the bottom of the hill. You don't lose. So when someone's running gates and practicing as a coach, you can see every turn, you can see every spot 
And so their ability to see that. And then I think the other thing that has made us unique over time is that our coaches have been able to demonstrate uh, that too. And I think from an athlete's perspective, they can turn around and say like, hey, you know, Dave Zemer is our, is our director now and all of our coaches, you know, they can go out and they can demonstrate at an elite level of what it should look like. So if they're trying to demonstrate something, the fact that an athlete can not only just watch one or two turns, that they can see every turn down the hill of what that should and look like, uh, and then be able to talk back and forth on it. I really think gives us a really unique advantage from a coaching standpoint, the ability to really touch and be very personal with each athlete, create a plan for the athlete and really like dive in deep to those. And I think Eric, his ability to see that, take advantage of the rope, take advantage of the idea of that vantage point. I'm being able to, you know, sit in a tower and really talk to every athlete and see every turn has really made our legacy what it is, you know, to turn out so many incredible athletes out of Buck. So, so Eric, to underscore this point, he showed up in 1960. Yeah. Last I saw, he was still involved. What's Eric's involvement like at Buck Hill today? He still pops out. You know, he's had a little bit of health issues the last couple of years, but I've seen him out here at least two or three times this year. And typically he'll go call it Siler's Tower or Siler's Shed where he'll go down, he'll, he'll watch, give his advice. You know, he comes out a couple of times a year and we're obviously more than happy when he does come out and can give any any thoughts. But I think just you know, him wanting to be here and want to be part of it, I think is, is just super cool. He's typically at the banquets at the end of the year and he'll get up there and say a few words. But, you know, up until my first winter, he was 90 and he was out here like twice a week. Skiing, um, and looking very smooth. You know, he looks like forty years younger than himself when he's out there on skis. But he's had a little bit of health issues, unfortunately, over the last couple of years. So he hasn't been on the hill quite as much as my first season. You know, but he's been out a little bit more this season, not riding, but just walking around and, and being present. There's an aura when he's here. You know, people know. I might not see him, but it's Eric's here. Eric's here. Eric's here. You know, and uh, you know, people take incredible amount of pride when he's here. And you know, when he speaks, people listen. And so it's it's super cool that he's still has a desire to be here uh, and obviously we're more than we're more than gracious anytime that he he wants to speak or give some type of advice so it's a pretty big ripple effect here in that we're talking specifically about buck hill but as a training ground and as the output of this racing program that he's helped to establish there or has established there over the decades you just have this enormous legacy which i mentioned in the intro sending 50 athletes to the u.s ski team i mean that is just amazing, but but really, that's just a, a headline number, and and that really barely represents the what I would imagine are thousands or tens of thousands of athletes who have moved through Buck Hills programs. C- can you drill into this a little bit for us here, Nate, and give us a broader sense of the scale and scope of what Buck Hill has been able to do with its racing programs? And this is not a world that I'm really keyed into, but just lay it out for us as best you can. Yeah the expansiveness of this over the decades? No, it's, it's a great question. Honestly, I'm still, you know, it's my fourth season. You know, every season I get more involved, more involved with with different aspects of the business. I spend more time in certain areas and it truly is incredible. And I'm still wrapping my head around the extent of, you know, amount of athletes, not just through our race team, but just the racers here in general. Like you mentioned, like the hill at any given day, there is a lot of allocated lanes. You know, I, we have our private hill for our team and all the athletes. You know, we have about 150 every year on our team that range anywhere from U12s all the way up to fifth level athletes. But you know, the 150 that train here, but then there's, I think there's eight high school teams that train out here daily starting in, you know, mid-Jan. They come out here and that's when their official practices start, but they're out here before then just getting, just getting free skiing in. But one thing that I've noticed, the extent is like everybody that 
I meet young and old, I'm walking to the, the chalet and I have a conversation with somebody and, you know, everybody, I raced here, my son raced here, we grew up watching races here, or telling stories historically about races. And it really is incredible. You know, we have this trophy room that's in our main chalet with pictures of all the different people. And some of them have gone, you know, Lindsey Bonds on that. Christina Kosnick, um, you know, some of our younger athletes that are now on the team, Paula Molson, Isaiah Nelson, Camden Conquest, some of those guys, more girls. We have this wall that has all these pictures that some of them are legends just at Buck, you know. Uh, some of them have gone on to do incredible things, you know, with the U.S. US ski team. It seems like every person that I come in contact with has some story. And then we have a ski challenge, which is a, you know, an adult league that's out here five days a week. They come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Sometimes there's a double session uh, and then they're here on a double session on Sundays. So just Fridays and Saturdays are the day that they're not here. And it's a, it's a race league. They're racing every day. It's different groups every day. So it's not like the same people that are racing, but, you know, they have anywhere from 18 to 15 teams that race every night. And those teams can have anywhere from four to six people on it. So lots of people that are still ingrained in the culture that grew up racing here that are now they're 40 50 60 some of them are 70 years old still doing ski challenge they typically start at seven o'clock at night once high schools are done and these are race ramp up at the top of milk run our main run so it's, it's very much still part of the culture and you talk to anybody that's on ski challenge and there's some story about growing up racing here skiing here practicing here it truly is incredible and just a, an incredible race culture that exists from our d team development team to our ski school and the evolution to all the way up to be able to tell the story like i started at buck and i made i'm on the olympic team uh, and having more than one of those you know to have as many athletes that we've had come through there to be able to tell that story i started at buck when i was five or four and i you know, made the olympic team it truly is an incredible small but mighty resort that can just churn out athletes uh at, at a very very high level and peak level at that one of the athletes who's not at all shy about shouting out her relationship with buck hill is Lindsay vaughn so it's not just buck hill shouting her out it goes the other way too talk about Lindsay's relationship with Buck Hill and how important has that been just given how high profile she is over the past decade or so just with solidifying the Skiers reputation as this premier racing center, not just in the Midwest, not just in Minnesota, but really in the United States and on the world scene. Yeah, we're incredibly proud of Lindsay. We're very supportive of her and it's vice versa, which, you know, we're we're so thankful that she's so proud of her humble beginnings here at Buck uh, and what that means to her. And she has been an unbelievable promoter of the Hill on a, on a grand and world stage uh, and given Buck, you know, that world, you know, just people have heard of Buck. I hear stories all the time. I was at, you know, our race team is all the time, you know, they're out in Colorado, our parents are out in Colorado and they're riding the chair and they're wearing their Buck Hill stuff. And they're like, oh, Buck Hill, like we know Buck Hill. But, you know, there's, they, they just know, you know, for how such a small hill and having such a reputation across the States and, and globally, it, it really is incredible. And she's obviously a huge reason for that. And it truly is incredible. And, you know, her involvement here, you know, she is obviously incredibly busy with her career, even without, you know, not necessarily ski racing anymore competitively, you know what she does. So there, you know, she was out here a couple of years ago when we uh, dedicated our uh, Olympic dreams, our race hill and the, the rope toe on the to kill those climb to her. She was out here for that with Red Bull. And there's, you know, every now and again, there's stuff where well, we reach out. We try to be very sensitive and mindful of her busy schedule, but very proud and very thankful for any time that she, she wants to be a part of something that we do out here. But, you know, that goes for all of our athletes, you know, as they 
try to stay really close with them. Our coaches are always really close, but, you know, as athletes evolve and they go on beyond our Buckhill ski race team, you know, like Paula Molson and Isaiah Nelson, Camden Polquist, all those, all those athletes, we, you know, we try to be as supportive as we can in sponsorships or just creating relationships and where they want to be involved in the resort. We try to keep a close touch with them and a good personal relationship. You know, and I think, I think we've done a pretty good job with that and uh, trying to be as supportive as as we can be as, as they evolve and they, they create their own stories and their own legacies beyond our race team. So the reputation is out there and it's one thing to hear a famous athlete shout out and say, Oh, I started at Buck Hill. I think you really need to see the place to appreciate how perfect it is as a training center. And I didn't realize that until I went and visited last year and I've been to hundreds of ski areas and I've never seen one quite like Buck Hill because you pull up into the parking lot and you can see the whole thing from the parking lot and there's a mogul run. And then next to that is some gates. And then next to that is a terrain park. And not exactly, but you get what I'm saying. It's everything's sort of like in little courses in training. And I've I've never seen a ski area that's so deliberately zoned like that. Just talk about that layout and how that's evolved over time and how you've built this what's really a training center for all different kinds of skiing, except maybe ski jumping and, and maybe the Saunders want to add that from the, from the sounds of it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it really is. I, I, you know, I, I give kudos to Julie Welsh. She's our race director and she kind of manages the things going on on Hill, all the different lanes that are being utilized. You know, throughout the summer, we'll talk about the schedule and stuff like that. And she'll lay down her schedule. And it's a spider web of different things going on on the Hill, all the different high school teams that are racing, all the different programs that are out here trying to do something. It truly is. She does an unbelievable job managing that and still being able on the whole, I think we still do a pretty good job of being able to offer programming. So people still get a fair amount of free skiing in where there's not a lot of overlap. And we all have our moments. I think in particular our moments here where we do have a lot of racing going on or events going on that because of our only 45 acres of skiable terrain, like sometimes it can feel a little crowded, but I think we do a pretty good job of still offering that, but you know, the ability to come out here and just, just ski for fun and not be able to navigate the resort without feeling like you're in the way or, or whatever. But I think one of the things that makes us really unique because of that is I, you know, I think we have this unbelievable way of progressing people, be it snowboard or ski, you know, we have kind of our ski school beginner area, which has typically we, we make a little bump in the hill. So as kids start, they have, you know, their ability to slide on snow, get comfortable on snow before they go on our, on our smaller magic carpet, fairly easy, you know, small hill to ride. But then we have the the second largest magic carpet in, in North America, I believe I could be wrong on that one, but from what no, I think it's a monster. Yeah, I wrote it just for fun. I was like, whoa, this goes on forever. It's never it goes over a little bridge. It's cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And, you know, it's, uh, but I think one of the things, you know, I have, I have a five, a three and a two year old. So as they're really, my, you know, my five year old in particular, he's really in the mix right now. And that carpet, I think does such an unbelievable job of it's long. So it feels like, it feels like you're on a lift without, you know, having to get on, you know, steep terrain or whatever. But I think it really provides an opportunity for people that are just getting into the sport. You still get the repetition, but it's a longer run where you can actually work on stuff versus, you know, some some bunny hills can be really short. So how much turns can you really work on? But I also think it's a really safe environment where my son Bodie, you know, I'll let him go up on the carpet by himself. And at the very tip, if I'm standing at the bottom, at the very tip, I kind of lose sight from him for a moment. I think about it in, in my phase as a, as a dad. And like that freedom that he gets going up the carpet by himself, getting over that lip, being out of sight. Uh, I do have to trust him that he comes down the right direction. Last year, he likes going to the park. And uh, there's a little like you can go right off the carpet or left. Left goes through the park. And I'll be like, all right, Bodie, when you come up, you're coming down this way. And then 
he'll, he'll be coming down through the park. <laughs> but, you know, it's incredible to be able to give kids that freedom. And I think it's just, uh, I wish more kids got to experience that, you know, at a young age. I didn't get to experience that as a kid. I didn't grow up skiing, but, you know, it's really cool to see my kids being able to, to get there and being able to progress, you know, with the terrain that we have. And, you know, there's so much variable terrain. We have a slope style course that gets put up or, or different things that we're doing a bank slalom then. And that being on it, as a kid, you can go experience, like if you're just learning, you know, there's, there's definitely the regular train that you can hit, but there's, there's areas and features, rollers, different size rollers, different, you know, different little features that you, you can practice on. And I think it's the ability to do that at a quick clip and be able to do that, you know, in a few hours and get a lot of rides in. I think it just, it allows kids to get more comfortable on skis. I always tell people like we're a unique resort and that we're not, I don't think we're necessarily a destination resort. You know, people can come here for two hours and get their rides in, get their, and I think there's a lot of value for the price point that we have. You know, I think one of the things that makes us, you know, the Midwest in general is a feeder to the West, right? But I think Buck Hill is in a very unique spot. Like we're a feeder to the industry because of our proximity to downtown Minneapolis and St. Paul, the fact that we are 10 or 15 minutes away, you know, we have 3 million people in very close proximity. And I think it's really important to be able to provide them with an environment where we have the elite that do train here. And I think that's incredible and so awesome that we can say that. But at the same time, I think there's there's a spot of the resort that has to cater to the people that have never done it before and being able to provide them, one, the value to do it so it's not too expensive, but two, the ability to give them terrain to progress uh, and ultimately, hopefully build a lifelong skier or snowboarder that ultimately can go off to other resorts that maybe feel more of like a destination, even, you know, in the region. There's some like Afton or Welsh that maybe feel like more of a, a destination resort compared to us, but give them that opportunity to learn here where they're not driving you know, extensive distances to get there. I drove 10 minutes. I was there for an hour. I did a lesson. I learned. I came for three lessons. And now I feel comfortable going going someplace else. I just I think we have a responsibility to give the ability for people to progress from the very first moment that they step on the resort to you know, to be able to cater to our athletes at the peak level. Minneapolis, St. Paul, it, it's an awesome ski town and it's one of the densest concentrations of skiers in the country. And you've done a really good job differentiating Buck Hill from the other ski areas for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned. The, the new owners, or well, I guess they're not new owners anymore, it was nine years ago, but the, the Solners, when they first took over, talked about a bunch of initiatives they wanted to do to build Buck Hill into more of a year round ski training center. They talked about Snowflex turf going up in the hills, which there's a hill in Virginia that has that one up in Connecticut. They talked about a Woodward style indoor training center. I'm not sure if those things ever happened. I'm not sure if they've had any conversations with any of these indoor ski companies that are, are trying to build in the big metro areas. What's the current thinking around these sorts of year round initiatives and making Buck Hill into someplace that's not just open three, four months a year, but really can give folks a training ground year round. Yeah. So when Dave and Chip first bought the resort a couple years into it, they did buy what was called a material called Nebaplast, which is from Italy. It does allow people to ski or snowboard year round. The first year that I was here, which is before my time, a couple years before COVID, they had it, I think it was on Redtail, which is a decent size run from top to bottom. And ultimately it was a new material. And I think our first summer or their first summer, they learned that 
you have to give skis the ability to they keep it to ride in the rope doing it and you weren't giving skis or snowboards the break so there was this uh, friction that was taking place on the bottom of the skis that if the skis weren't getting a break or wasn't properly lubricated could damage the skis and so i think the, the first impressions maybe weren't that great and then they shortened the run and the second year they did it they added irrigation to it and then that worked fine uh, and then we ran into covid and the last couple of years have been a lot of construction. So it's honestly, it's landed a, a little dormant the last couple of years. But I will say, you know, so last summer we started our first USS Freestyle uh, snowboard team. So they started their fall training, dry lane training, and our coaches utilized the Nevoplast material over at a section. Where they actually used our tubing area and they put up a couple rails and the athletes trained on that in the fall. And I know there's plans. Casey's our head coach and, uh, and director. He's got grand plans for the summer, moving it off tubing, but moving it over. We call it the knob, which is another train park area, but kind of widening it out adding more features and the goal is ultimately to get our athletes on a board once a month throughout the summertime you know how that evolves into offering it to the public i'm not sure right now it'll be focused predominantly on on our athletes and, and giving them the ability to train uh we have used it and the plan is to use some of the nevoplast material also for tubing you can use it for tubes so trying to offer as we do different events throughout the summer or the fall for example we did this Bucktoberfest festival where we had a, a showing uh, of a film in the fall in that we had a we had a beer garden and a handful of breweries that came out and we realized afterwards that we didn't give the opportunity for kids to do anything that were out here uh so i think this year we're gonna kind of one up that and say like all right we need to do a better job of catering to kids i didn't realize that people were going to bring so many kids out for the for the filming and for the beer garden but i think it led to you know parents wanted to be out here for two or three hours but if there's nothing really for the kids to do there's you know after an hour you're like all right they're getting a little getting a little squirmy we we need to go and so i think this year we're gonna we're gonna add uh tubing off to the end of the bar for that event and maybe throughout the summer for different events but again just trying to utilize that material throughout the summer and you know where that grows who knows we did last summer something super cool so matt hoffman he's one of our buckhill ski team coaches i think he does our u16s but in the summertime prior to last summer he had uh he's got a background in exercise science uh, and strength and conditioning. So he had been growing his own business. He had uh, rented a place off on the west side of the cities, kind of been moving around trying to find a permanent home and had approached us about, hey, could we could we do something at Buck? And so the first summer we kind of noodled on where's the right location. But last year we leased, leased off our hutch space to him and he transformed that in, into a gym and it had three Olympic racks in it. It had earth and rubber mats down and, it, and outside of the hutch is a flat area. So he kind of was inside outside. And so last summer was the first summer we had a training facility on-prem. We just signed a three-year lease with him. So he's going to do that the next three seasons with the hope that, you know, over time, you know, as we, as I mentioned earlier, now that some of our infrastructure stuff is kind of taken care of, you know, we can really look at the existing buildings at the base of the resort and what do we want to do. And, you know, a training center is definitely part of that mix evolution of buck but you know for now Matt's doing a great job kind of servicing our athletes and they're out here every day during the summer training and and doing that and it, it really is a cool little facility he transformed it into and it's our parents our athletes are super excited about our parent the athletes of the parents are are besides themselves you know he had i think anywhere from 50 to 80 athletes training out here throughout the summer from our team it gives us a unique advantage to have our team being trained all year long and so they do their camps in the summer so they still get on snow typically once a month, but it's a pretty cool little thing that he did. Those things are, they're evolving and they're always kind of top of mind. Uh, and there, we found great ways to utilize either investments that we have or evolving with Matt and trying to give our athletes a unique opportunity to train here at Buck and have this be a permanent home for them where they're not going to a different gym throughout the summer or a different training facility. Again, just trying to cherish that legacy and keep our team at a peak level. Just, I think it's really important for every everything that we do. And I think it's always, it's always top of mind because it's, it's such an intangible piece of the resort and the name Buck Hill. 
think it's something we really cherish and really want to just continue to have it evolve and be at a, at a peak level and keep up with the times. So lots of improvements ongoing. I'm curious, Nate, now that you have three modern lifts and you have a whole bunch of rope toes and carpets and all this kind of stuff. And I, I really love the high speed rope toes. I'm a big fan of those because they're so cheap and they move so many skiers. I'm curious if you're kind of finished for now because you have those three modern chairlifts with your with your lift fleet or if there are other improvements you want to make. Do you like where the ropes are? Do you like that they are ropes? Is there anywhere else you want to put a chairlift? Just kind of take us into your broad long-term strategic thinking as you think about how you're moving people up the hill and where you're moving them. Are you pretty happy or do you have some other improvements in mind? We're pretty happy at the moment. I think there's some small tweaks to some of the ropes from what I've heard. They sit really low. So you're having to like bend down and grab them versus I think some of the other resorts will have them be more like hip height. So I think that's more of like a functionality of the rope rather than like moving it around. So I think there's some small improvements that can be made there. But I think overall, pretty happy with where the chairs are, where the ropes are. You know, I think the biggest thing over the last couple of years, it really has been an evolution for the resort and just more attention to detail. We hired Miles Grote, who's uh, our train park manager, came from Wild Mountain. He's done an unbelievable job with like evolving our train parks and adding, you know, proper progressions, uh, our jump lines and just giving, you know, our freestyle riders, be it snow or ski, the ability to, to have the same progressions that maybe our, our racers have. We have five different train parks, one being our, our very basic and evolving all the way up to our jump line with Haz and Gerber, which have more like advanced features in them. I, I'm not a jump guy, but from people in the public that I've had conversations to and Matt Cuff, our marketing director is very close to He's a snowboarder, but very close to that to that culture and what Miles has done, and the rest of our park park crew uh, have just done an unbelievable job of upgrading our parks, making them have proper progressions, unique features, things that kids love or adults love to ride, and then the ability to have our half pipe here on site, and the fact that it's I think one of the few in the world that has a speaking of ropes that has a that has a rope that services the half pipe. Very unique. Again, you get a ton of repetitions if you're a, if you're a pipe rider. Those are all things, but I think overall pretty happy with the land out as is the next i think evolution for the resorts is that the buildings here that were built in the early 70s uh, really just have been untouched trying to spend give them a little tlc and some upgrades and you know we'll kind of play those by ear for how much that actually is and how much it's the rebuild versus cosmetic but uh pretty happy with the way that the resort is and again utilizing the, the new chair for doing stuff in the summertime and then you know continue to try to evolve our summer programming when there's a lot going on with that at the moment so we've talked about a lot of different things in isolation when you put them all together what you've really done over the past several years is to modernize the infrastructure at buck hill and one of the positive consequences of that maybe this was the goal is that you've made a much more energy efficient operation. And, and because of your background as CFO, I think you probably have a unique perspective on this and I'd love to get your take on it. And you were recognized recently by Dakota Energy as being an energy efficient business, right? Tell us about your energy strategy overall. Because I think a lot of times it's positioned as a cost, right? But really it's an upfront investment and then hopefully you end up saving money long-term. So I'm curious overall about your strategy and how you've been able to achieve this. And then in particular, Nate, I'm wondering about the difference when you upgraded that quad, when you went from a 1978 Hall chairlift to a 2023 Doppelmayr machine, are the new chairlifts more energy efficient or is it just cost what it costs to move a chairlift uphill? So if you could break that all down for us and then focus on that chairlift in particular. You know, since Dave's time of buying the resort, I don't know if it was his first or second year when it was, but, you know, a couple of years into his ownership, he bought into, they have a, a renewal program. So we actually, we pay to be a part of that, but it ends up all of our energy is offset by renewable energy. I think it's well wind, 
wind energy that Dakota Electric pays to have built someplace else. But so in theory, we offset our energy bill based on our contribution to be completely renewable. We also have a generator here on-prem that if we had to go off the grid, we could. So sometimes in the summertime, when I think Dakota Electric's pull is higher for whatever reason, they'll actually turn the generator on. So there are moments in the summertime where we're actually off the grid from an energy perspective and running strictly off the generator, which is pretty cool. But uh, being overall, I mean, the, the handful of projects that we've done have led to the new chairlifts, the new snow guns, uh, the new pumps up in our pump house. And I think also lights are another big one from what I remember from Dakota Electric, I, I believe. I read it right. There was a, we've had 124 lights on the hill that have moved from 1,000 watt fixtures to 3,000 watt fixtures. But the combination of the new pump house, the snow guns, the lights, uh, and the new chair have equated to about a million kilowatt hours saved in energy um, across the board, which we've obviously seen in our electric bill. And so, you know, from there, there's some efficiencies and savings that we've seen compared to prior to some of those upgrades. Which, which is super cool. And I think it's super cool to say that we're a 100% renewable resort. And, you know, again, I think that's kudos to Dave to, you know, wanting to be a part of that and continuing to strive to keep that top of mind when we're doing when we're doing projects, how to make them energy efficient and keep them top of mind. I'm curious about the chairlift in particular. We hear a lot about energy efficient snowmaking, energy efficient lights, and those are well documented. And, and it's clear that you can run those things for cheaper now than you could. I've yet to see anyone really position the new chairlift technology as more energy efficient. So I, I'm curious, is it is the new Doppelmayr lift more efficient than that old hauled quad chair was? Ken Spelsi is one of our leads outside. He has told me that there is some small efficiencies from the chair. I don't know what it relates to like from a kilowatt hours and savings time. Uh, I know just across, across the different projects that that's what Dakota Electric, right before the season they did, as we have done all these upgrades, they came kind of came in and did an audit, but they didn't really break out the chair specifically. So what I know is just from, DOP says that they're more efficient. I don't know how that gets back to a kilowatt hour from a savings perspective, but I'm, I am told from Dakota Electric and the combination of those other things that, you know, it is, it is creating a lot of savings from energy use. So back to that pesky interstate for a minute, you're in the same situation as Cascade Mountain in Wisconsin and that you're hard by the interstate, no moving that thing, which means you're kind of tight on parking. And I found that out the hard way when I tried to stop by Buck Hill on a sunny Sunday afternoon, which I, I should know better. Um, and and I, I drove around and there seemed to be a lot of cars parked up and down the neighboring neighborhood. I, I didn't really feel like walking that far. So I just went somewhere else and I came back to Buck Hill later in the week. What's your parking situation? Is there something I didn't know? Is there a satellite lot with a shuttle? Kind of break this down for us. What What are your restrictions and what are your solutions? Yeah, uh, it is definitely hands down probably our biggest pain point from the resort at this point. And I think one thing that we have struggled in the past is the consistency of the shuttle. One of my goals this winter is to just try to say the shuttle runs every Saturday, Sunday, it runs from 10 to 7 and it goes to the, we have a, there's a little, as you come down our frontage road, there's a there's a side street that people can do on street parking, which is probably what you're talking about. We also have a, a local mall, the Burnsville Mall, which is down the road that has an enormous parking lot. And so we'll use that as additional parking as, as well as the on-street parking. So the shuttle runs through the kind of that on-street parking and then down to the mall and back. We try to just push because our neighbors don't love the fact that all of our guests park right in front of their the townhouses that are there. But it, it's a legacy thing. Like people just know that in the past that's where the shuttle is picked up or if they're you know if they're okay walking they'll walk down from there but we try really hard we're trying really hard this year to just 
let guests know, like, hey, the shuttle's running, it goes to the mall. We'll still pick up people if they do park on Greenhaven, which is that road uh, for on-street parking. But I think one of the things that we have struggled with in the past is the inconsistency of the shuttle, how often it runs. And it's, it's just, it's honestly, it's a, it's a budget conversation. You know, it's a thousand bucks to run the shuttle for the day. And then we have to pay additional to have the parking spots down at the mall. I haven't been super involved with it up until this year because I know it was such a pain point for our guests and got for our marketing director and how to communicate that and the consistency of it. And I've always been on the approach of, we just have to be consistent. We have to just say, Hey, it runs from 10 to seven. That might not be till close, but then guests at least know they can come accustomed to where it goes, when it starts, when it ends, where is it going? Every time that we decide not to run it, then guests don't know like, oh, well, is it running? Is it not running? Yeah. We have had it for the most part, unless it's been absurdly cold where we just know the parking lot's not good. I've tried to run it. And I know from talking to the drivers, you know, at two, three o'clock every day, and this could be weather. We haven't had a great weather where we've been just like completely bonkers all day, all day long. But for the days that we have ran it, they've picked up. I think there's been one day where they picked up probably like 15 to 16 people. And most of the days it's been maybe one or not at all. And so, you know, you look at it from a business side and you're like, well, should we do it? Should we not do it? And there's always that unknown, like how busy is our parking lot going to get? You know, if we're on a 20 degree day, it's Bluebird. We know it's going to be busy. We have a race. Let's let's have it. But how many people is it picking up? Is it worth it versus having a person drive through the parking lot a little bit longer? And I'm, you know, because of that unknown, I'm, I'm to me, it's, it's a little bit of a, it's an op cost that we just, we have to have and we have to communicate consistently. So I guess no, and just over time, it'll be to our favor where guests just know like, hey, the shuttle runs on Saturdays and Sundays, it runs from 10 to seven. But it's no doubt because of that inconsistency, I think people don't always know. And because of that, they, they tend to drive around in the parking lot for a half an hour trying to find a spot. And I, I think the biggest part of the resort where it really impacts us is actually tubing. Because when you're skiing, there's no, we typically on weekends, we don't have session time. Like there's no, like we have a late night plus ticket that goes from three to nine. We have a late night ticket that's, you know, seven to nine, that three to nine is such a big window. So if they're 15 minutes late or half an hour late, you know, because of parking, uh, or getting into the resort, it doesn't impact their day as much. But tubing, our tubing operation has, you know, in, on the weekends it runs from nine to nine, runs in half hour, two hour sessions and half hour increments. So nine, nine thirty, ten as a two hour ticket that goes with it. We add like a fifteen minute cushion on the front and the back end of the tickets, just on the off chance someone arrives early and they get to the gate. And I don't, I don't want to be a stickler, like you can't go for another two minutes especially if they've, they've gone through the line and, and, and waited. So, you know, we try to be a little bit flexible, but that's also if on the back end, you know, someone has a parking issue, uh, the reason we put it on the back end, because if they are 15 or 20 minutes late, you know, there's that little cushion on the backside that like if they're supposed to end at 11, we give them until 11.15 or 11.30 to, you know, finish their runs. Or if they were running late, like we try to be pretty open with that as they, as they come in and check in. And, you know, some people will be frantic, like, oh, I had a 9.30 session time and it's 9.45. Like, am I going to, am I still going to have, and we can tell them like, you know, rest assured, like the ticket will work until 15 minutes beyond your time. So you'll be fine. You'll have plenty of runs. You'll have a blast. But that's really where those impact us the most, where someone is, you know, really behind. They've never been to the resort. So they go to the wrong area and, you know, they're 45 minutes behind their session time. That's when it really, like, really kind of kicks us a little bit. We're having to figure out, like, how do we best accommodate the guests in that situation? How much of it is our fault because we don't have parking versus, and I think typically we'd probably take the blame more than not and just kind of try to navigate that with the guests. Like, we understand, we know the parking lot's crazy. Let's get you in a session that you'll get your full two hours. And and sometimes those decisions are hard because it's sold out. And the reason that we have capacity is like how many tubes can be on the hill at once. So try to be conscious of that as you're navigating that. But there's no doubt parking is an absolute pain here. 
and trying to get better with finding finding more solutions. Uh, we've looked, there's just with us being landlocked and so much housing developments and there's just, there's not a great parking solution where we could go find an empty lot and just say, this is where you go if you want to take the shuttle for buck and have that go every time. There's been a couple opportunities here or there that are either very, very expensive or people don't want to, they don't want the liability of someone parking in their lot or whatever. So it's no doubt a challenge. There is a park and ride down the, down the way from us that has been unused by MnDOT, but we've been unable to get a hold of anybody at MnDOT that wants to engage in a conversation. So we deal with it. It's a challenge for sure. But I think a big part of how we can get better at it is just the communication with the guests. You know, when they purchase a ticket, that like a no before you go. And we're getting better with that. We're by no means perfect. And that's an evolution that we're trying to do with our online ticketing and try to communicate to guests once they purchase of what to expect when they're coming to the resort. How can they be prepared? Uh, what clothes to wear? How to put on a sticky ticket? You know, some things that might seem silly to people that come here all the time, but to people that have never done it before, which we have so much of that is just, it's an invaluable piece of, of a way to communicate. So that's, that's something I think that's top of mind for us going forward to try to just get better with. So from a broad point of view, it's a good problem to have, right? Because it, it means you're busy yes. and it seems like you're busy almost all the time. Buck Hill has been on the Indie Pass pretty much since the beginning. I think maybe since the beginning, since 2019. The Indy Pass, people joined it for different reasons, right? And there's 130 Alpine resorts on there. A lot of them do it because they're kind of in the middle of nowhere and they need more guests. doesn't seem like Buck Hill really needs more people, but talk about the Indy Pass, why that makes sense for you and how good that's been for your business, for Buck Hill over the past five seasons. Yeah. So the, last year we had about 2000 people that visited us through the Indy Pass, whether or not they would have came otherwise, I'm not sure, but it's a good, it's a good visitation for us. Uh, I think because we're maybe just like a pass through, it maybe is one of those things that we feel is like people are in the area. They just hop out to Buck for a couple hours. They go for a ride. But I think one of the when it first started, you know, and we had our conversations with Doug, and and it, you know, one of the things that I think we can just do a better job of how do we provide uh, season pass holder value? And I think you know initially it was like well. They had been on the max pass. So if you're a season pass holder, you could add max pass. So we were providing that extra value as a resort, you know, to get access to other places, you know, throughout the country that went away. And I think Indy was another outlet where we could, again, we could tell our pass holders like, Hey, we're doing this to try to give some extra value to them, give them access to the ability to go, to go elsewhere and ski. I think that's, that's really where it started from trying to do more for our pass holders. We don't do it. Like I said, we don't do a ton for them on, on site. Like, you don't get like a, a discount in our chalet on food. There's been conversations about how to do that. I just don't think we've evolved with our passes there and like how to accommodate that on the resort. But I think other than that, it's been great conversations. You know, India has been really good to us as far as different things and involving us in events. You know, the, two years ago, they were filming In Pursuit of Soul with Teton Gravity Research. And we did a showing out here and they wanted to incorporate us and do the world premiere at Buck. And so, you know, for us, it's just been like a really good relationship. And, you know, if I need to call Doug and talk through him with something like, hey, you know, we've kind of talked about maybe doing something this spring with with a corporation of IndyPass and trying to incorporate them in like a promo that we do for IndyPass uh, pass holders. And they're just, again, they're really receptive to working with us. I just feel like it provides a lot of value to us, whether it's people coming to the resort or vice versa, our season pass holders being able to go to other places if they want to do the add-on. So you got caught up in a little indie pass controversy last summer. You had a reciprocal agreement with Ski Cooper. You were one of about 20 or so ski areas that were on both Ski Cooper's pass and indie pass. Indie pass asked you to choose, said you can't be on Ski Cooper because it, it, 
essentially that was a, a discounted season pass has reciprocal agreements all over the country. And I think Indy saw it as a competitor. They asked you to choose, you chose Indy, take us into that process, Nate, and, and how you handled that and ultimately why you decided that it was in Buck Hill's best interest to go with Indy rather than stick with Ski Cooper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good question. You know, honestly, it was when I, when I first came on, there were a couple of resorts that were similar to Ski Cooper for us. And I think I would get an email you know, in the summer or the fall, like, hey, you still want to do a reciprocal pass. Uh, Ski Cooper was one of them. Big Bear. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other one that we had. But honestly, it was just kind of like, yeah, it sounds great. We had, it was, it was more or less like, yeah, it adds a little value to our pass holders and being able to give them the opportunity again to ski at other resorts. But I don't know, to be honest, I don't think much thought. I think it was just more a legacy thing. Like we all, we'd always had done it, but we hadn't had much. But we'd get a couple people from Ski Cooper and vice versa. So I don't think there was much research done into everything that happened with their reciprocal pass and Indy and, and whatever. So honestly, you know, Doug gave his call, kind of talked to us about it. And for us, it was a little bit of a no-brainer. I mean, the fact that we get 2,000 visitations through Indy Pass and, you know, a, you know, a few, like I said, three, four maybe from Ski Cooper and the conversation that we have a ski cooper are via email it's just like a quick like hey you guys want to do this this year yeah we want to do it so you know in, in all reality i mean it wasn't while i think some people in the industry maybe maybe it was a little bit more controversial for us it was a very easy decision you know based on our relationship the fact that indy really works with us and doing other things outside of just selling an indy pass uh you know it feels like they not that Ski Cooper doesn't care about the resort, but they just have more involvement with us. You know, I have a really good relationship with Doug. So again, when I was approached, it was just like, yeah, it makes sense. Understand it. We're, we're moving forward and, uh, you know, really value the relationship that we have with them and, and where they're going. You're, you're also paid for each of those 2000 indie visits where the Ski Cooper is just an exchange and you give free lift tickets. You know, th- that payout that Indy gives you is a percentage of your lift ticket what they call rack rate or window rack price or what yep. someone would pay if they just walked up. So I, I do want to walk off on this. Buck Hill has incredibly affordable skiing. $49 in advance for an adult lift ticket, $59 on the hill. That, that's for a weekend. Okay. So weekdays, nights, kids tickets, they're even more affordable. I won't go through the whole list right now, but but I will point out Afton Alps, now owned of course by Vale Resorts, is almost $100 in peak days. Welch Village, is near $80. Both of those are great ski areas. I've skied them both. I I think they're both really cool and interesting and and quirky and sprawling. And and I, and I like them, but if you're someone who wants to try skiing for the first time and you compare those three and all those are sort of in drive range, it's clearly Buck Hill has an advantage there. Talk about that pricing structure, Nate, obviously consumers are used to seeing price of everything go up right now. And, and you would have some latitude to move that up, but talk about why you keep Buck Hill's lift tickets so affordable and i guess it would be interesting to hear how you're able to do that because it seems like the cost of everything is going up yeah it's definitely a challenge i mean it's a it's a piece of a conversation every year it's a little bit you know some of the change of on-site versus online you know some of that originally stemmed from covid and originally it was a five dollar difference and that didn't seem to really sway people to buy online so the first year of covid that didn't really make much of a difference and so then it was we were getting like a I would say for on the on the ski side, it was like a two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds people buying online, one-thirds people just 
buying on site and, and being fine with it. And we wanted to push people it's such a, with our waiver process in, in Minnesota, uh, it's a very time consuming piece, especially when you have a family of four or five buying, we, you know, we upped it to, to 10 bucks for all of our breaks between on site and online. And that seems to be enough where people are now, like if they get up to our ticket window and they're like, oh, I can save 10 bucks. They, they'll step out and they'll buy. And again, the reason for doing that for us is just, it streamlines it. They get a barcode, it gets them a ticket. There's no waiver process in the ticket office. So it's just a lot quicker for our guests, but we still have a lot of people that are buying on site. So we're, we're still getting that margin for those tickets. You know, I think on the trying to, trying to keep them all, I mean, it's, uh, I think for us value is it's, it's always top of mind in everything we do and trying not to price ourselves out of the market. We know that we're not necessarily a destination resort. You know, like I mentioned a couple of times today, you know, it's, we know that you can come, you know, a lot of people come for two, three hours and uh, you know, that's, that's their thing. They're coming, making runs before work, after work, you know, they're coming out with their kids for a couple hours and making some runs where some of those other resorts, we know you're going for a whole day. It's a, it's a thing, but our proximity to downtown and the Metro really makes us unique. There's an underlying for us. We feel very passionate that we're a feeder to, to the industry and that we have so many people you know, this opportunity because of the 3 million people in the metro. We want to feel like the, the ski industry is it's, it's not priced out of the market. I want to give people the opportunity to experience skiing, whether it be for their kids, like my kids are going through it right now and experiencing that at a young age and getting people out on skis. And, you know, some of that has to be with affordability and giving them the access to do it. And then hopefully, you know, for us, it's creating lifelong skiers, they end up being pass holders. Hopefully it's at buck, but, but ultimately we feel very passionate that once you've learned to ski or snowboard, you're going to do it for the rest of your life or until you no longer can. And, you know, the, the ski industry is really, really small in the grand scheme of things. So trying to be very forward and on the value side to, from a person that's never done it before, like you can come, you can afford it, it is attainable. We have price points, we have $20 tickets and giving them the opportunity to experience the sport uh, is so important. And so I think we try our best to make money, but straddle the line of like still giving a lot of value to the people that are buying tickets and giving them a really good experience. I just think that's, that's something that comes up every year as we talk about season pass prices, ticket prices and other programming you know, a big topic for us right now is like homeschool groups, you know, homeschool here in the metro and I think across the nation has grown 50 or 60 percent. So those can be weekday visitations. And so is there ways that we can touch that community and provide them an opportunity? And a lot of times, you know, it's big families, it's people with that five, six families that it ultimately can be really expensive. So I think that's a that's a big area for us to try to figure out, like, how do we give them an outlet to come? You know, they're always looking for, we do homeschool days, uh, but we don't have like a homeschool ticket where we're offering it more often. And where is there a lot of value in that ticket to try to get them out? Because ultimately, like, you know, it's butts and seats, you know, it's getting people here when you need them here. You know, we are busy on the weekends, but in the week, how do we find more opportunities to get people here during the week, experiencing the sport when there's less people here and ultimately just just fall in love with the sport. And I think that that value proposition is, is truly important to be able to provide that to, to the masses. And a little bit of the, the tubing piece is just like, it doesn't require any skill. You know, it's a, it's a cheap way to come and experience snow, be on snow, be comfortable with the elements and being outside and like what that does for like your, your well-being uh, and then being able to promote that. Like those are, those are all, I think, super important, you know, as we evolve as a resort and our proximity to so many people, it's just part of what makes us maybe unique and different. All right, Nate, I know you got a busy weekend to get ready for. I will let you go with that. I appreciate all the time you gave us today. Thank you so much. Buck Hill is a very special place, and I really appreciate you 
giving us all that insight into it. So I hope you have a great rest of the winter. I hope it gets cold again, and I hope you can spin the list well into March this year. So thank you very much, Nate, for everything today. Stuart, thanks for taking the time to talk with me and uh, have uh, you know be interested in, in Buck and uh, what we go what we got going on out here. So much, much, much appreciated. Thank you. That's Nate Burr, Chief Operating Officer of Buck Hill, Minnesota. That was killer, Nate. I appreciate you and I appreciate Buck for what it does to keep churning skiers down the assembly line. Thank you all so very much for listening. It's been a slow start to the year for the pod, but don't read anything into that. Just some scheduling flukes that kind of piled up for a moment. I've got some good ones in the can, plus episode schedule with the leaders of Camelback, Red Mountain, Mount Bachelor, Okemo, Sugar Bowl, Mission Ridge, Tenny, Panorama, Bluewood, and Arapahoe Basin. And I am adding more all the time. To get new episodes the moment they're live, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. New podcasts appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter. And paid subscribers will receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production. Thank you.